Okay, getting started in three, two, one. Evening, everybody. It's uh, Pete Bento, Trade Geek, with a, a rare early week uh, emergency podcast regarding the trade war. Let's see, it's December the 9th right now. I hope to have this out in the next 24 hours. We'll see how that works out for me. But there's a couple of things going on with the trade war that I think are very important that we focus on. First is the recent political uh, decisions by the U.S. Congress to um, bring light, bring to light uh, issues regarding uh, humanitarian issues in Hong Kong and in portions of China. In case you're paying attention, there's been a lot of upheaval, social upheaval, in uh, in China and in Hong Kong over the past couple of months, and that upheaval has a lot to do with um, certain laws that they wanted to pass that would allow for dissidents and people who've broken the law to be brought to China to um, serve their, uh, have their trials, et cetera, et cetera. And people in Hong Kong don't like that idea very much because they've always been a separate independent entity. So there have been um, riots in the streets, peaceful protests, massive ones. And um, Congress decided that they were going to put a resolution together in support of these people. In doing so, it's caused a, a tremendous amount of stress between the US and China. China is at the point now, from what I understand, this is from my conversations with people in DC on Friday. So that was uh, four days ago. Uh, being told that from people in DC that China wants to end this and that it's really being held up on a how much U.S. agricultural exports are we actually going to send to China? So are we going to send the 50 billion or less than that? Is there a, um, a number of years that this will occur over? Or is there a guarantee of a number of years? The U.S., of course, is a little bit concerned about whether or not um, our friends in China will actually follow through with this commitment. So uh, they're, they're trying to lock this down and also force China to continue to pay tariffs until we have assurances that they're following through. Now, what we're not hearing a lot about, and when I say not hearing a lot about, whenever I have a conversation with anybody on the inside, it is excessively rare that there is any movement or any information about what we're going to do with China to limit theft of intellectual property. It's not being discussed in this phase one agreement from what I've been told. And that was the entire point of this uh, trade war. The United States economy is moving towards one of innovation. No other economy is as close as we are, possibly India, but that's about it, where the idea matters significantly more than the product itself. So uh, what you're seeing is this movement in the United States 
to um, invest in ideas, concepts, uh, innovation, right? Look at Tesla as an example, right? These cars, these EV cars are only part of what the business is. There is also the solar roofs. Um, there's this Elon Musk's obsession with space, which is turning into SpaceX and hopefully will create um, a multinational conglomerate going to Mars. These are all concepts, ideas, uh, biological therapies, uh, incredible innovations when it comes to medicine, American concepts, Western European, Indian concepts. And what we don't want is for other countries to simply steal these ideas and replicate them. Because really, manufacturing prowess is not something that we have. Um, our ability to control our market isn't something that we have. So if they wanted to, they could certainly do it. And because it's a centrally controlled economy, they could probably do it better than we can. And this is terrifying. It's terrifying uh, to U.S. manufacturers moving forward. It's terrifying to American innovators. So the main point of all of this was to try to do something to deal with that. And if you begin to listen more and more, it's being kicked down the road. That can's being kicked down the road so that there's some sort of a, of a, of a quote unquote win for the president to be able to use during, um, during our uh, election cycle. Now go to the second half of this, right? So beyond innovation, beyond this free trade deal, there's a lot of American companies who have an expectation that this is a movement towards a free trade agreement with China. And you keep hearing that, you know, um, that we're going to have some sort of tariff reductions for certain products and a movement towards a more normalized relationship. I'm not sure if I buy that uh, happening anytime soon. Then the last thing I wanted to talk about with this one is um, if you think it's ending anytime soon, you're, you're crazy. Every indication is that there'll be small steps toward a resolution, not just an ending of these tariffs. If you haven't taken steps already to do something about these tariffs, you need to start because at least lists one and two most likely are going to be in place for a long time. Now we are six days away from the threat of list four. If you talk to people like me, Dan Dan the import man and on our friends on the consulting side, it seems utterly irrational that these tariffs will be put in place. But it also seemed utterly irrational not all that long ago that we would have had uh, as long of a, of, a, of a trade war as we've had right now. So here's my advice. If you have not started some sort of a process to manage these tariffs, you need to get on it, you need to get on it soon. The second half of my advice is to begin to pay a little more attention to trade compliance with relation to uh, the 301s. And here's why. A lot of companies are going back, looking at the classification of a product and saying, well, you know, we can probably put this into a different category, a different chapter. There's an old, um, you know, there's an old customs ruling we could probably apply this thing to. Beauty, great, you know, good for you. Keep in mind that when you do that, you have to make corrections to everything in the past going back five years. So if you've moved to something that has a one or 2% tariff instead of zero, but that one or 2% is not subject to the 301 tariffs, you're, you're gonna end up having to go back the five years and pay the old tariffs. And then once this is over with, don't think it's gonna be very easy for you to just switch back to the old one. That just puts you in, in, in more trouble. You know? So really begin to think about what you're doing there. Also, the uh, desire for companies to cheat. They're doing a great job in DC of discovering people who are switching harmonized tariff codes 
moving to a different uh, part of the world that clearly cannot produce the products. Remember guys, when you find a new producer, they've probably been producing something close to it in the past, maybe at the, at the heading and subheading level, definitely at the chat level, right? So if you suddenly move to a new producer that's never imported something to America of this particular harmonized tariff code type, that's gonna set off bells and whistles. If you are engaged in transshipping, you're going to get caught. People often underestimate the ability of customs. They think that, uh, you know, this is some keystone coppery going on in DC. That is not true. They are going to catch you. They have the statistics and the computers and the systems and the people and the experience to understand when you're, you're farting around with your statistics. Just don't, don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Just be smart about this and follow the rules. All right. And then lastly, people that are playing um, games with regards to valuation, same thing. I hope that you have taken the time to record how you arrived at this new version of valuation. I hope that you've actually done some work and some effort to get to this new way of valuation, because if you haven't, you're going to get called on the carpet. So spend the time on it. Okay. Then the next thing I want to talk about was uh, what we're going to do with trade school and with uh, the trade geek podcast in 2020. I am going to be bringing on a number of guest hosts, my friend, Abby Freeman, who was at Sierra Nevada corporation, who's just a gunslinger when it comes to export compliance. is gonna join me for my next podcast. I'll be bringing Hector Strada on later on this week to discuss USMCA. Had an amazing conversation last week, um, Friday again, with some people who are involved in USMCA and what's going on from a, um, really a policy standpoint. So what's happening in Congress? What's going on with USMCA? And if you haven't noticed guys, every part of our political um, discussions Republican, Democrat, even in the middle, there appears to be a desire to move USMCA forward. Why? Why is everyone suddenly interested in moving this forward? How will it move forward? What will need to be done to get it to a point where we can actually vote on it? Because that has to happen before the president signs it. And expected changes that could happen to USMCA, will they be accepted not only by the executive branch, but by Mexico and, and Canada, who are also engaged in this? So we're gonna have a long conversation about that. I'll be bringing Dan Dan, the import man in a lot, talking about trade compliance. And as always, I wanna bring in people from industry, friends of mine, friends of yours, uh, people in trade, people in law enforcement, so that we can talk about a lot of things. How do they get to where they are? Um, why do they choose this wacky business? And where, where do they have advice for other people who might be trying to do the same thing? So um, do a lot of that next year. There'll be a normal cadence to it. We're gonna try to do this thing once a week and we'll have both the video up on YouTube as well as our podcast on practically every podcast uh, platform that, that matters, I suppose. So, um, and the last thing, uh, again, going back to who we are, what we do, I wanted to um, answer a question that I got in email today. So I got an email from uh, a young man at, uh, I think it's Western Michigan or Central Michigan University who watched this and said, we've heard about three other people so far on, on this uh, podcast. And we've heard about like 10 people in trade school about how they got to where they are. Could you just talk a little bit about how you ended up in this business? My, you know, my bio's out there. You can read it anytime. But what happened to me was um, like a lot of people via accident. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was in New Orleans 
and I was down there with some um, potential clients and good friends to watch the Saints game. Go Saints. You know, that game yesterday with the Niners, still angry. Still very angry, but boy, was it a good game. Uh, yeah, so we were down there for a Saints game. And I, uh, I was in a bar, and I recognized a friend of mine from way back in the 90s that I worked with in forwarding. And uh, he was a, a freight salesman, and he was there with his new wife on his honeymoon, happened to be at the same bar I was. And before you know it, like the two of us are literally sitting in a bar, hammering shots at Jameson. I mean, like sport drinking Irish liquor and, and telling the craziest stories about things that we had done when we were in our 20s. And then he says, you know, you have no so-and-sos also down here. And this other um, friend of mine from way back when, who was also a salesman, was in New Orleans because his daughter goes to Tulane. And he was down there. He just dropped her off. and drove. So we are like having this outrageous conversation between the three of us about what it was like in the 90s and how we ended up doing what we did. So, um, yeah, I'll, I will I'll let you know that uh, this wasn't my first choice. So I started my career, um, I went to Maine Maritime Academy in Castine, Maine, and Maine Maritime Academy is a merchant marine academy. It's, uh, it's a place where young men and women go, for the most part, to learn how to be officers on ships and then to go in the Navy Coast Guard. Uh, a significant portion of the men and women who go to Maine Maritime Academy graduate in non-regimented programs, end up working in international logistics, marine uh, sciences, marine, uh, marine biology, small vessel operations. It's a totally cool school. It, it's, it's one of these places that no one's ever heard of until they hear of it. And then, I mean, everybody wishes they went there. So, um, you know, I would, I would go to sea every summer and I would come back and my friends would say, oh man, I had like the greatest summer ever. You know, I was working and cutting grass during the day. And yeah, I'm like, yeah, dude, I was in Poland for like a week and a half. And then I went to Russia and then I was in England and then, you know, I got on a ship and, and I was down in South America. And, and I mean, it was just an amazing, amazing opportunity for me. And I didn't want to go. So I had applied to a number of other colleges that were not in that, that realm of, of, uh, of professionals. And I did not get in. So I had a pretty high opinion of myself academically when I was uh, 17 years old. And the schools that I applied to just said no. And I found myself trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Um, and that's when my mom stepped in. So for friends of mine who are listening and, and old colleagues, my mother passed away a number of years ago in a car accident. And uh, it's funny, I was talking to my ex-wife about this today. We tend to round up when people pass away, right? We don't remember all the horrible, miserable things that we went through with each other, just the good things. My mom was a tornado. She was a force in nature. And you didn't say no to her. So I was not going to go to college. In 1988, I made the decision I was not going to go to college. I was going to get a McJob and I was going to be a comedian. I was going to be a full-time stand-up. I had no talent. I was awful. Anyone that heard my comedy in the 80s will tell you that it was just miserable. But I knew I would get better if I did more of it. 
And my mother was not having that at all. So um, she applied to a number of colleges without my knowledge. And that's, that is a sad truth. Um, much like a lot of my life, going to a Maritime Academy happened by accident. Now these merchant marine schools are set up for, and this, again, getting back to trade, are set up primarily uh, to create um, an opportunity for the US military, the military seal of command to have officers prepared to go into um, you know, all the different areas of the US Merchant Marine and the Navy and how we communicate with one another in time of war. So it was a military school. And I was not prepared for that type of an environment. I was, um, I was a young man. I, uh, I was an awful juvenile delinquent. So I know a couple of my friends from high school listen to this podcast and they would, they would agree with me. I was, um, I was a, you know, beer drinking, poorly behaved 17 year old. And the idea of me shaving my head and going to a military school and someday joining the Navy was laughable, but very glad I did it. So I, um, I showed up on August the 27th in Castine, Maine. And, uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a bag with all of my belongings. I, had, um, I, was, I was told what I could and couldn't bring. So at Maine Maritime Academy, when I was a freshman, you could bring two blankets, you know, one pillow. You had uh, two sets of sheets. It, it, was, it was like going away to Boy Scout camp, but much more serious. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget, we called it mug radio. So freshmen, when they weren't calling us maggots, they called us mugs midshipmen under guidance. And uh, that was that was simply a way to remind us that we had not earned the right to be called midshipmen yet. We were not midshipmen fourth class. Many of us would be dropping out and they did. So my, my maggot year, my mug year, we could have one clock radio. So, <laughs> and, and this is sailors, right? This is what we do. So my roommate, Jack Spratt, Steven Spratt, Jack, you are the greatest man. I can't love, I hope you listen to this. I love that guy so much. Jack and I were roommates my freshman year. We each had our, our uh, alarm clocks on both sides of the room. And it was, it was called mug stereo. We all did it. Like every, every freshman did it where we would turn both of our clock radios onto the same radio station so that we could get music out of two speakers. Weren't allowed to have Walkmans, couldn't have a refrigerator, couldn't have a boom box, couldn't have Game Boys or any, any of that stuff. Um, so Jack and I were, were pretty squared away. We didn't have a lot of that crap, but we had friends of ours, uh, you know, people that were in our company that had Walkmans and they had televisions and they had stuff that they hid. And uh, you know, I'd go to a friend of mine and I'd ask if I could borrow his Walkman for a couple hours so I could listen to my Echo and the Bunny Men records or the Cure or whatever, you know, listen to my Sisters of Mercy and my Bauhaus stuff because I was a weird kid. Um, and that was wonderful. Like those are the things that, that got you excited. Or when, um, you know, they're a third class, which basically a sophomore, they had a television and, you know, because of sports between, you know, rugby and cross country and lacrosse, you, you meet a lot of upperclassmen, they were very cool. Not, not everybody was a jerk. There was, there were plenty of dicks. Don't get me wrong. But for the most part, you know, upperclassmen were wonderful to us and we'd watch TV with them and stuff. Uh, but it was a very strict place. And I needed that because I had absolutely no discipline as a teenager. 
So I, uh, I attended the academy. I studied the deck, the deck officer path, which at the time was called either nautical sciences or marine transportation. And I went marine transportation because I knew I was not going to end up going to sea for the rest of my life, just honestly. And I, um, wow, I feel like I'm in therapy talking so much about this stuff, but I've never really done it on a recording before. So um, I made it through all four years of the academy. And to be uh, brutally honest, I excelled heavily in my business classes. And I excelled heavily in my hands-on merchant marine classes. But I was less than a stellar midshipman when it came to the academic things. Um, if it hadn't been for friends of mine like Dave Schumacher and, and for Jack, I would not have passed marine engineering essentials. I would not have passed celestial navigation. I just, I didn't like sitting in a, in a, in a room and listening to my very intelligent professors talk to me about what I was going to do at sea. So I, I graduate. Um, I did not pass my Coast Guard exams the first time I took them or the second. Um, and I did eventually pass, but it was, uh, you know, it became pretty clear to me that going to sea wasn't what I wanted to do. And uh, I scrapped that, you know, and um, I ended up moving to Baltimore and um, pursuing comedy poorly. But I pursued comedy and stand-up comedy. And then I, um, I got a great job as a marine surveyor. And I continued on the comedy path and continued on the, you know, the path of working in um, logistics firms at the time. And comedy was going well. I, um, I made people laugh. I don't, I don't really want to remember how awful my comedy was back then. It's much better now, but I was making people laugh and I was doing okay. Um, but it became clear to me, uh, that I needed to do more with my life and that living in the back of Chevy Astro vans and sleeping in Hampton Inns wasn't going to work out for me long-term. So I applied to a bunch of graduate schools, um, and before I did that, I talked to a lot of good friends, comedians and otherwise, and uh, I just decided it wasn't for me. So I got accepted to Harvard, which uh, shocked everybody. I have a, a good friend, Chris Profacci in Maryland. He actually called the Office of Admissions because he couldn't believe it happened. So uh, yeah, I, I had, um, I've been working on political campaigns part-time. I've gotten a lot of wonderful recommendations from people. When I, when I tell you that, that I backed into it, I'm not kidding. So, and also don't be too impressed with regards to people who went to Harvard. It's mostly marketing, sincerely. Uh, right. So I, I moved back to Boston and I need a job. So I'm, I'm doing comedy on the side. I'm uh, writing, I'm doing whatever I can, but I need a job because Graduate school was going to run me somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70 grand a year between tuition and books and, and finding a place to stay and all the rest of it. And I had money saved up, but not quite enough. So uh, another great look into me as a person. Um, I, I moved up to New Hampshire for a little while before my semester started. And um, I was at my mom's house. And I had applied for all of these jobs in logistics because I had a degree in logistics, right? Or not really, you know what I'm saying. Um, and I was home and I had an interview with a Swiss company called Panalpina in Boston. And uh, I had to be there by three o'clock for my interview with a guy named Marty Gillespie, who's just the nicest man. 
and uh, Magnum was on. Okay, so not just any Magnum, but the the final two-parter. The final, the, I, know, I know how ridiculous this sounds, right? But the final two-episode series finale of Magnum was on TV 38. And I, I didn't have a VCR. My mom didn't have a VCR. She didn't believe in them. I, I wasn't going to go to my interview. Like, I literally was not going to go to my interview. And so uh, one of my best friends from high school, I'm one of those weird guys that has the same friends from high school that, that I do now. Like I am still just as close with these idiots as I was when I was 17. My friend Bill Duclos called me up to wish me good luck on in my interview. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not going. I, I mean, come on, man. It's like the two-parter. It's, it's the two-parter magnum finale. And uh, he said, I will record it, you moron. You've got to go down there. You have to, if you stay, you're going to regret, you got to go. You can't just not go on job interviews, you idiot. So I went. And I went down to Boston to Chelsea, which is a dump. It's where all the freight forwarders were back then. And uh, I had my first interview in freight forwarding, like literally my first one. It's my first inter job interview trying to get into that business. I wasn't trying to get into it. It was just like logistics, right? I worked on a ship. How much different can it be? And um, I met with Marty and he said, we read your resume and you went to a Maritime Academy and you speak German. This is a Swiss company. And if you can handle working on a ship, you can probably handle cutting airway bills. Here's the deal. Jobs at night. So from four o'clock in the afternoon until midnight, four days a week. And then Fridays you come in and you work till the air freight's done. And then Saturdays in the mornings, like we have a lot of overtime. Uh, it says you're going to graduate school, so this could be a really good job for you. I took it. Like, I took it. I, I didn't even know what I was getting paid. He gave me an envelope with all this information in it, and uh, I shook his hand, and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm down. Cool. And I, I took this job in forwarding because how much different could it possibly be? Right? Than what I learned. Could not have been more. It was, it was air freight, first of all. So I would go to class during the day. And at night, I would turn up at three o'clock and I would route airway bills based on postal codes. I would deal with the acceptance of freight. It was me and like two dudes in the warehouse at night. That was it. But I would gun out airway bills all night long. So they were done when people came in the next day and they close out the masters or close out the truck to head down to New York and Miami. I just, I was by myself. I would, I had a boom box and I would listen to old school hip hop, like death metal and Howard Stern. Like 104.1 WBCN. That's what I would do. I would, I would sit up there by myself and I would drink 900,000 Diet Cokes and uh, I smoked back then. So I would go downstairs and smoke a cigarette like every hour in like the worst neighborhood in Chelsea. Me and two other guys. And then when I was done at night, because I didn't have a car, I would walk to, um, I would walk to the MBTA station and I would get the last train to my stop in Maverick and uh, no, Orient Heights. And then I would take a bus to my apartment in Winthrop, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, some things happened with, with, uh, with my life where one of the sales guys left and went to a competitor, AEI Air Express International. And these guys were like, Hey, we'll give you a job. Man. It's gonna be awesome. And uh, we'll pay you a little bit more. 
Um, but more importantly, we'll give you some some uh, tuition reimbursement. I'm like, Say no more, dude. I'm in. So uh, I went to work for AEI, which got bought by a number of companies, but became Danzis, and then was was eventually DHL. Uh, and I was going to school there, and um, I was going to school at the same time. And my uh, my someone became a very good friend of mine, a guy named Jerry Peck, who uh, I owe a lot to. There's that guy out there that gives you your first real break, and everyone has that story, right? Marty gave me my first break when he gave me a job cutting airway bills, but um, Jerry Peck came to Boston to work on an audit for one of our clients and asked me to basically carry his bag and sat with me and listened to me and heard what I wanted to do with my career. And that was essentially, you know, I wanted to become a trading customs consultant because I was looking at the world and I saw how all of these free trade agreements were going to happen. Um, and I knew that there was a, a there, was, there weren't enough people that understood the, the process. There weren't enough people that did it. So I wanted to do that. And he, then he came in, he came rolling into Boston, right? And Jerry's from Kansas City and he uh, actually is from Topeka. Um, or no, liberal, liberal Kansas, I think is where he's from. And um, comes rolling in, and this is like 1997, I think. I don't know what year it was. The homeboy comes rolling in, and he's got on like the Don Johnson deconstructed blazer, and the sleeves are like rolled up halfway. He's got this glorious haircut. He had this like, like, um, it was like big on top, and he had a little bit of mullet thing going on, but it wasn't a mullet, like it was like a Hollywood haircut. And he had, to this day, to this day, the greatest mustache. You know, he had this big bushy blonde mustache. He looked like an extra from Miami Vice, um, crossed with like a guy who probably played the guitar in an 80s rock band. And he was so cool. Like Jerry was so cool. He drove this dope ass BMW and um, he wore cowboy boots everywhere because he didn't give a damn, right? He was in Texas for a long time. Um, he had this great voice, like he was on the radio. But more importantly, he was confident. And Jerry was super, super confident because uh, he knew what he was talking about. And I wanted to be like that guy. Like I wanted to be the guy that came into a room when everything was burning around me and be like, hey, you know what? I can help. I, I, everyone calm down. Daddy's home. And we're going to scare the monster back under the bed. Like Jerry would walk into a room and that's exactly how, how he would be. And people would just, oh, you didn't tell me you were sending Jerry Peck, right? And, and everything would go well. So uh, he said to me, I'll give you a job in the consulting group on two conditions. Condition number one, you've got to move to Connecticut, which believe it or not, worked very well for me because my ex-wife at the time, uh, who's still a very good friend of mine, and she's the mother of my daughter, Charlotte. Uh, my ex-wife at the time, lived in Connecticut, worked at the Good Speed Opera House. So it, like it worked for me that if I could get to Connecticut, that'd be good. You know, it was tough being in a long distance relationship. Um, and then he said, you got to pass the broker's exam. And the broker's exam was in like in eight weeks. So uh, on top of grad school, on top of working a full-time job where I, I probably easily worked 60 to 70 hour work weeks. And on top of, of being, um, a full-on party animal at that point in my life. I was a terror and doing comedy and going on stage. And like, I was in the North and of Boston 
And if I wasn't asleep, I was working. If I wasn't working or asleep, I was trying to calm me. If I wasn't doing any of those things, I was probably at some really crappy bar drinking pitchers of beer and tearing it up. Uh, so I had eight weeks to pass my exam. And I did. I, I sat down. I took this. Uh, I took one of these classes, uh, Sullivan and Lynch, uh, trade attorneys in Boston. They taught a class at Bunker Hill Community College. So when I wasn't at Harvard, I was at Bunker Hill Community College. You know what? That was more important than anything I ever learned at Harvard. And they taught me how to pass the test. And I went in and I passed the test. It was eight weeks of hell because there was no internet to speak of back. I mean, there wasn't internet, but I didn't have access to it. I didn't have, I didn't have a laptop. <laughs> um, you know, as a matter of fact, I had a pay phone, I had a phone, a regular phone in my house, but I didn't have a cell phone. I had a pager. Um, and I would, I would just study and study and study and study and study and take practice exams. And I remember when I, um, when I took the test, I came home after I took the test and, uh, two of my good friends, Scott Demers and uh, Ryan McGuire, Ryan's at CH Robinson now. And, uh, Scott is over at, um, at Iron Mountain. They called, they called my, my, they kept my pager up. And then I called them at the office. Yo, man, you haven't gone out party so long. We're going to go out and just rip it up. It's good. We're going to go to Charlestown and just hammer it up and get in a fight with a bunch of Irish dudes. I'm like, yeah. And I got home and I sat down on the couch for 20 minutes and I woke up like 14 hours later. Because all that stress and everything had fallen out of me. And, and back then, you had no idea if you passed. So what would eventually happen is people would get their test and you could write down what your answers were to the questions. And then you would get together with your study groups and the people who helped you and you would see whether or not what you answered was correct. Kind of get a feel for if you passed or not. I didn't know. I took my test and I waited. My, my, uh, my test was on October 3rd. And um, the week of Thanksgiving, I came home to my, I mean, shitty apartment in the north end of Boston. My roommate and I uh, were so broke. Um, and and I, I, I opened up the mail and there was this big manila envelope from, from the Department of the Treasury, from Customs. And I didn't want to open it. I was scared. And I, I went upstairs to my fifth floor walk up. And I said, well, good or bad, let's do it. And uh, I uh, went to the refrigerator and we had one beer left. So we had, we had a gallon of milk that was probably 15 months old. Um, I remember I had, a, I had a, a box of shells, like a box of nine millimeter um, rounds in the refrigerator. I don't know why. And, uh, and one beer. So I had one Sam Adams, one. And I cracked it open. And I opened up my envelope and it said I passed. Um, I remember I, I screamed. I was like, oh my God, I passed the test. I was so excited. I was out of my mind excited. And I, um, I called my girlfriend at the time. And then I called Jerry. Um, I called Jerry. Jerry had a cell phone. Very chic. And I called Jerry up and I said, Jerry, I passed my exam. And he said, I knew you would. And I said, I'm glad someone knew I would because none of us thought I would. And he said, yeah, all right, well, you know, it's November. Let's clean things up up there and we'll see you down here after the new year. And, um, and that's, you know, that's what happened. I, I, I became a trade consultant and that's how it happened. Now I get to Connecticut and months later, months, not even like six months, I think 
maybe it was like six, six or eight months, uh, Jerry got a job offer from KPMG and he told them, I'll come over on the condition that I have a player to be named later. And it's this kid Pete and you're going to really like him a lot. And that's, uh, I went to KPMG and um, in two years, I went from being a senior staff member to being a senior manager. I think I was 28, 29, um, 28, was 28. And uh, making way too much money being in New York City. But my thing was uh, looking for opportunities that other people didn't look at, like freight, transportation, logistics, customs house brokerage, and selling. I could sell. So I was pretty good at getting clients to agree to let us do the work. Um, I left that job in 2002, post 9-11, to go to work at Expeditors Trademan. And that was amazing. I had never been in charge before, you know? So I had my own P&L and it was a failing P&L at the time. And I just figured I'd sell my way out of it, but that, that's not how that works, you know? Um, and I worked with some legends, uh, Ed Quas, who had been the deputy commissioner and the acting commissioner at one point of CBP. Sorry, it was customs, treasury at the time. Dick Rossetti, who was in charge of the office of foreign trade and this guy, oh my gosh. I mean, he's forgotten more about customs value than I know. And the joke was, you could hire me to give you advice on the customs valuation laws, or we could just ask Dick what he meant when he wrote the valuation law. He was amazing. Um, show me the money, Sanders. He was there. Um, Lynn Brumley, a very, very talented customs house broker. Um, Susan, I mean, there was just a Dave Ross on the export side. Danny, Danny, the import man came over. My friend Kevin Doucette, oh, Kevin, came over to do uh, CT Pat work. I mean, it was just this like, it was the island of misfit toys, you know? Um, but we did really well. And we turned the practice into something because of my old boss, Phil Coughlin, who taught us how to make money. My friend Garth Ashley, who was just, ugh, Garth was amazing. Garth and I went into <laughs> Phil's office one day and he said, uh, so, hey, uh, pretty smart guy. Uh, you don't answer that question with a yes when Phil asks it. I was like, yeah, 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 you know, whatever, Phil. And he goes, so uh, you and Garth, pretty smart guys, know what you're doing when it comes to giving people advice on trade. I guess, yeah. And he said, you know how to sell, right? I said, well, well, yeah, I mean, you know how to get people to do what they're supposed to do, right? Like, yeah, where's this going? And he goes, so there are two smart people in this room going to ask you a couple of real simple questions. Garth, Pete, does the practice make money? We've been at this for like a year and a half at this point, two years maybe. So no, actually we're still in the we're still in the red. And then he said, uh, "Can you tell me why?" And so we had all this anecdotal stuff that we used to answer that. You know, can you show me statistics that um, can you show me some statistics that 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 tell you whether or not you're making money? And do you have statistics to back up the claim you just made? No. And he goes, "You don't you don't know. You don't know." He said, so let me get this straight. Two of the smartest guys in the company, apparently, don't make any money for this company, and they don't know why. And it, it was this humiliating moment. Because we, we, people would hire us for I mean, a lot of money to come in and, and take care of projects for them. And we'd do the work. And then we'd look at the bottom line a month or two later, and it wasn't reflecting what was going on. Um, and that kind of became this, this, uh, this Rubicon. You know, we never looked back from there. 
you don't make money, you don't know why. Two guys that are driven by statistics and math can't use those skills to fix this. And through his tutelage and a lot of hard work and a lot of suffering, um, and, and I'm not exaggerating, it was very hard. We had to make a lot of really difficult decisions. Uh, we, we turned that practice into something special. I'm, I'm still pretty proud of what happened there. Traveled endlessly and uh, I did a lot of presentations. You know, I was in Cleveland when the person I was with from KPMG had gotten sick from eating sushi and was unable to give a presentation to a footwear uh, imports session. And they just said, you got to go do it. And I had no idea what I was doing. And it was probably like a, a C plus effort, but I loved it. And, and you know, ever since then, I, I regularly do 50 to 70 speeches a year all over the world on global trade. And uh, it's my favorite part of my job. There's no toys about it. Sitting down and educating people in a meaningful way, which is why I started this podcast, is I think that there's just too much to learn from too many great people. Um, but anyway, we, um, I ended up leaving because I got a promise for a whole lot more money from another great company, C.H. Robinson. And I went there and uh, incredible experience. Wonderful, wonderful people. And the folks I got to work with, some of them are still some of the closest friends I've got. Um, I got into a tangle with the new CEO of my group um, who would eventually be fired. So I don't know, take that for what it is. And I decided to leave. My ego got the best of me. Unfortunately, a number of my guys came with me. We waited out our, our two-year non-compete while we were at Ryan. And now I, uh, I went to Crane after that. I spent two years there. Again, great experience. Uh, but I, I missed being in the financial consulting side of things, and hence why I'm here. You know, along the way, continue my education at Durham, PhD work there, had countless amounts of conversations with really, really smart people. Like the list goes on and on. Everyone on the cargo side, Chuck Forsyth, Brad Elrod, Alan Gear. Um, I, I could keep going. You know, on the custom side, I have friends of mine that were my clients that taught me incredible things. And, um, you know, it got me to, to what's where I'm at now, where I'm at uh, again. You know, it's funny, started at KPMG really, and now we are, we're here. I'm in a massive tax firm with, with really impressive resources and global coverage. And now I'm in charge of a team that is everywhere, you know, and can do anything with regards to what we do. And luckily for me, Dan Dan, the import man came along, sort of keep me straight on this stuff, right? And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of how it all happened. I, I'd love to sit here and tell you that this was all on purpose, but it wasn't. I thought that I would be an economist working for uh, some Wall Street firm or that I would have been um, Kevin Hart telling jokes to an attorney, uh, but I'm not funny enough or motivated enough and I don't want to work hard enough to be the guy who has that big of a comedy career. And um, when it comes to the consulting side of things, I love these people. I love the people that we work with. I absolutely love importers and exporters because it's exceptionally rare that I meet somebody who really doesn't want to do the right thing when you get right down to it. They just don't know how. So we, um, 
we've been fortunate to meet a bunch of people and show them how, and that they've trusted us enough to give them advice. So for all of you youngsters out there, I know a lot of academy kids listen to this podcast, and you're wondering how you can have this, you know, glamorous life like I do here at the at the Lemuridian in Oak Brook when I'm doing this, or you know, at the courtyard by Marriott in Chesterton, Indiana next week. Um, you know, it's not always Dublin and Amsterdam and South Africa and Sydney guys. A lot of it is Tulsa and Akron. Um, I, I don't know how to tell you how to do it. Uh, I'll say this, you need to get your license. You need to get your broker's license because that's your foot in the door. You're not a broker just because you have a license. You're a broker because you've helped people bring things in the country. You're a broker because you've managed somehow to learn a thing or two, to experience things, to fail, um, to watch other people fail and to help them through it. That's what makes you a custom sales broker. And in a world where freight forwarding is getting harder and harder to be profitable and to make money in, in a world where, uh, you know, I question the future of the U.S. merchant marine, where so much of business is being automated, you need to find a way to bring value to your clients. And I think that this is one of those places where we still can. So in the end, you know, I'm, I'm the result of a lot of um, mistakes, bad decisions, but a lot of good people giving me a second chance. Um, I can't imagine what I could have done with my life if I actually lived up to my potential. But luckily there's been a lot of people who believed in me. So, um, you know, if you're wondering how to become an international trade consultant, put in the work, get your license, do the small tedious things and do them well. And remember that someone is looking at that bottom line and you need to make sure that the value you give your clients results in financial value to the company you're working for. And uh, you'll do great. So that's my origin story, like Spider-Man and Wolverine. That's how I kind of got here, you know? Um, I love my job. I really do. So we're going to do a lot more uh, talking to other people. I think that's about enough of me forever. I don't think we ever need to talk about Pete Mento ever again. Um, we're going to talk about uh, policy, and we're going to talk about the wonderful people I've worked with. Um, and, and shy away from that. I've done it once. I don't want to ever have to do it again. So... Uh, as we hear more about U.S. China, I'll let you know. If I hear anything else about France, I'll let you know. And anything that has to do with compliance, we'll let you know. Um, but again, thank you all for listening to the podcast. I am shocked at how many people listen. Thank you all for coming to trade school. I am blown away that hundreds and hundreds and thousands sometimes of people listen to the trade school podcasts, uh, webcasts. And uh, if you ever have any questions, you can reach me at pete.mento at crow.com, at C-R-O-W-E.com. And I'll be happy to do what I can for you. So that's it for this week. Uh, stay compliant out there. And um, we'll be back very soon with a podcast on USMCA with my friend Hector Estrada. And also one discussing the complexities of logistics for the military and uh, trade compliance for the military with my friend Abby Freeman of Sierra Nevada Corporation. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Bye. Three, two, one.